Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. I'm Pastor Lyle, and we've been praying for you, praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we're here to serve, so please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way that we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage you throughout the week. Join me now as we continue this study in the book of Mark. Man, man what a great time and just singing in our worship this morning. Um, you know, ultimately, in that last song, like talking about the fact that he's been faithful through generations, that he will not fail, is, is really the, 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 the core of, of what all of the discussion is today. And you'll see how it kind of all comes together in that way when we finally reach the end of our, our journey this morning through the scriptures. Um, but I, I do want to point out something here before we get into where we are in the book of Mark. We have this continued study that um, we are within these last few chapters of the end of Jesus' life, moving toward crucifixion and the resurrection. We're in chapter 14 today. We started in chapter 14, uh, and uh, we're going to kind of catch us up a little bit and then continue on at the beginning of chapter 14. But um, I just want to point out something that my wife pointed out to me and as we were thinking about this. And Brian, I just so appreciate that, that every week you pour your life into producing and picking songs. But today you picked a song and scripture that both were about eagle's wings. I just, I'm like, she's like, wait, did you pick this today for football? I'm like, no, like this is all Brian up here with his eagle's jersey on. Just... Fly, Eagles, fly. And I will also point out the problem with the Bills fans is that Jeff did not know his team was not in the Super Bowl today. I just want to, he just, you know, starts there. Um, so today we're ultimately uh, going to be looking at Judas. We're in chapter 14 where we're going to be talking about Judas. And as soon as I say the word Judas, uh, you're immediately thinking like traitor, betrayer, the name that nobody names their child anymore because it, he's, he's gone down in infamy. Um, and so in a moment, we're going to read the verses in our, our Mark chapter 14 passage um, that talk to us about Judas. It's the end of that sandwich of scripture that we started in last week, and we're going to catch you up. But because it's Super Bowl Sunday, football day, uh, I want to start with maybe some infamous uh, sports betrayals. So here's how I want you to respond. Is, is if you see the picture come on the screen and it, it just strikes a nerve with you. Now, some of these may hit some more people a little differently than others, but boy, if this is this betrayal, this sellout of sports uh, personnel that you're going to see that come up on the screen here in a second, if it hits you, then you just go ahead and you boo the person that you see on the screen. So let's bring up the first, the first group here. Uh, Oh, all we get is an, oh, he didn't even have the, the, the Red Sox nation in the room couldn't even bring out a boo because they just, it's, it just irritates them so badly, right? Now, for the Yankees fans, like, as far as Johnny Damon goes, you could have kept Johnny Damon in, in, in Boston, it would have been great. But, so the other guy, anybody know who that is? Wade Boggs, right? Uh, so Wade Boggs, he leaves Boston, he comes to New York and wins a couple World Series, like, talk about going down as a sellout. Um, 
and I guess in his, and I didn't see it, but I guess in his Hall of Fame thing, he wore a Red Sox cap to like kind of, you know, and they were not having any of that, I don't think, in Boston. But in fact, they're so, the Red Sox-Yankees thing is so serious, and some of you guys are Red Sox fans and Yankees fans or whatever, but we lived in, in you know, around Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you know, an hour, an hour and a half outside of Boston, and our, our entire church, you know, we had like six, 700 people. We were the only, sorry, us and one other person was a Yankees fan in the church that we were in. Of course, everybody else was Red Sox fans and maybe two Phillies fans for some reason. But, um, but in the time that we lived there, <laughs> in the time that we lived there, uh, two Yankees fa- uh, fans were killed uh, in, in parking lots of bars by being run over by Red Sox fans. That's how serious they take this. So when you see, if you're, you know, the fact that those guys put on pinstripes, absolute traitor, betrayer, sellout. All right, the next one. Any Packers fans in the rooms? Where's Lynn Baker today? Like, she would have been like, boo! Like, oh, man, like, what a betrayal to go and be the quarterback for the Vikings after all those years. And you, I don't know, I mean, if you can read that, but his quote was, in Minnesota, I finally feel like I'm home. Brett Favre, what a terrible, terrible thing after all that time. Uh, and, I don't, and I don't cheer for either of those teams. It just feels wrong. It feels awful. Now, this next one you may not be connected to. This is going back a ways, but kind of jumping back into uh, sports infamy. This is one of the most famous situations of betrayal, um, traitor. So the owner of the Baltimore's, they win the world, they win, I almost said World Series, they win the Super Bowl, and then in the next years, he's having issues with the city of Baltimore. Bottom line, he moves the entire franchise to Indianapolis in the middle of the night. They hired moving trucks in the middle of the night to show up at the stadium, and they cleared out all of the Colts gear, and they took it and drove it to Indianapolis uh, because of finances, basically. Like, within the first two weeks, they had 135,000 season ticket holders. Now, what happened over the night, he made a lot of money, like, and, and the Ursay family, and specifically um, uh, the decision maker owner at the time, was probably the most, uh, you know, uh, hated sports figure for many, many years. Um, but interestingly, like, they went on this huge drought. Jim Elway, who was supposed to be, you know, the quarterback, he gets drafted by them. He, does, he refuses to play for the Colts. And then finally, uh, you know, 45 years later, it's when Peyton Manning, they finally win a Super Bowl with the Colts. But uh, that goes down as one of the greatest betrayals of sports in history of all time when they moved uh, Baltimore Colts to Indianapolis. In fact, it was so bad in the 1986, I know, it's going way back, 1986, Sports Illustrated story. This is what his mom said about Mr. Ursay, the owner of, he said, she says, he's a devil on earth, that one. He stole all our money and he said goodbye. He doesn't care for me. I haven't seen him in 35 years. My husband, Charles, sent him to college. I mean, we paid for his wedding, $5,000 it cost us. And then when my husband got sick and he had a heart attack, he took advantage. He was no good. He was a bad boy. And I don't want to talk about him anymore. That's what his mom had to say. So talk about, like, we're talking about Judas today. Like, this guy, like, mom had a lot to say about uh, Judas-like behavior. Um, Now, ironically, this next one's going to hit Pastor Dave. This next one, so... So the, the Colts leave and they go to, to Indianapolis. But then the team that replaced Baltimore in 1996 was the Cleveland Browns. And so... Art Modell does basically the same thing to Cleveland 
that happened with the Ursay family in Baltimore now is taking the Cleveland franchise because of very almost the identical situation happening in Cleveland that was happening. And they're now, oh, this is awesome. And then they become the Baltimore Ravens a few years later when their first Super Bowl and then a couple years after that when their second. So they've had two Super Bowls after betraying the city of Cleveland. Oh, it just hurts for all those Ohio people that are, that are here. I know. I didn't get, we didn't get any booze out of that, so there's very few, very few uh, people who care about either of these teams, it seems like. But here, okay, so I, I you know, I will, I will vocally boo when, when the next picture comes up. I believe this is the greatest betrayal of sports history in the history of sports. Go ahead and put up the next page. Boo! And again, I'm not even from Cleveland. But the whole, like, he's coming back. Like, it's amazing. Like, the king is returning home is like, you know, all the, and they flip to the next one. And then a couple years later, sellout, backstabber, traitor, he's gone. Off to L.A. of all places. For those of us who are 80s Celtics fans, nothing good happens in L.A. I'll give him Kobe Bryant was a pretty positive thing. But uh, LeBron, biggest sellout, backstabber, and traitor, I believe, uh, he's at the top of my list. You may not agree with that, but he's, he's so, so today we're, we've looked at a few uh, significant traitors, betrayers, sellouts. But today is probably the greatest traitor, sellout, betrayer that certainly is in scripture. Uh, his name is Judas. We pick up today in Mark chapter 14, um, and I'm just going to read where we, we we're going to kind of, I'm going to touch on where we were a little bit last week, and I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and listen to the podcast or to watch um, online to, uh, to be able to catch up. Like, this passage of, of Mark 14 is a, what Mark, we refer to in Mark is like a sandwich passage. He does this several times in the book of Mark, where he sandwiches something between two things, and, and last week we saw this, but the bottom of this sandwich, I'm going to remind you of kind of the top and middle here in a second, but the bottom of the sandwich is these verses in Mark chapter 14, verse 10. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy of scriptures today. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. To betray Jesus. Now, this is the bottom of a sandwich where we see wickedness at the top, wickedness at the bottom, and a worshiper in the middle. And Austin, you can go back. I know I kind of went out of order there, but you can go back. So last week, we were in those first two points, the decision of the rulers. It's the wicked rulers and the leaders. It was the Sanhedrin who was out to capture, to have a covert operation, really, of report back where Jesus is. Uh, that, you know, is after the turning of the tables and all that happened in the temple. And they are out to seize and kill Jesus. Now, importantly to know at the beginning of that, in verse 2, I think it is, it says, uh, but not when the crowd's around. There's an eight-day festival that's going on, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So eight days, this isn't the right time to do it because there's uh, up to potentially a couple million people, certainly hundreds of thousands of extras, but some would estimate that a couple million people are now within the city walls during this Passover time. So we're not, we got to capture them, we've got to seize them, but let's not do this when the crowds are around. But then the second part, the middle of that sandwich, there's wickedness, and in the middle there's a worshiper. It's Mary, and last week as we looked and we kind of unpacked these verses of Mary as a worshiper, 
there were two things that became clear as it shows the fact that she breaks the bottle of ointment. It's a year's salary of ointment, and she just, she puts it all over. She anoints Jesus' body according to Jesus. She did what she could and has anointed my body for burial. She anointed his head. She washed his feet with her hair. She is lavishly loving on Jesus. Now, we talk about two words in there in, in the, the presentation of the worship because sometimes we think about that in our, our life with just in our earthly life that we have, we are sometimes preservationists. We preserve. When we preserve something, it's like, I want to hold on to my stuff. But then sometimes we're also not just preserved, we can be reserved, where it's more of like a, you know, I'm holding on to myself. And what we see in Mary's uh, uh, picture of her worship of Jesus is there was no reservation and no preservation in her worship. But we saw what happened in that situation, that room uh, that's filled with this fragrance, and she's lavishly loving on Jesus, and she gets eviscerated for it. They're scolding her for it. And it's not just Judas. It's he gets some of the other guys on board with him and they're scolding Mary. Now what's amazing in that worship picture in the middle of this in this passage that Jesus speaks up for her. And he says to the guys in that room that day, leave her alone. He speaks up. It, it was, it'd be like you with your dad and he, he comes into the room and you're up to no good and he says, stop doing that. And the, the air kind of falls out of the room. And like in a moment when Jesus, Daddy Jesus is like, you leave her alone. He speaks up for the worshiper who has no reservation, no preservation in her worship of Jesus. So we see in this sandwich, the top is the wicked rulers and the middle is the worshiper. And now we're here, we are with Judas. At the bottom of the sandwich, it's more wickedness. The wicked betrayer. I want to point out, too, that we don't miss that in that picture of Mary worshiping, two different times we see Mary worshiping, and I know we, we talked at length about this last week, but if you missed it, it's so important today as we move forward on Judas that we have the picture of the contrast that's happening in this passage, the context, that two different times in Mary's life when she's at the feet worshiping Jesus, she's scolded in both times. And the first one is when her sister Mary, or Mary uh, Martha comes and scolds her and says, you need to help me. I'm getting everything ready. And Jesus stops her, corrects her while she's being scolded, while she's scolding her sister, and says that Mary has chosen the better thing. And then in the second situation we see here, she's worshiping, and she's getting scolded for her worshiping, and Jesus says she's chosen what is beautiful. She's chosen what is beautiful. Twice she's worshiping, and she's giving what's better, and she's giving what's beautiful, uh, for Jesus. That's important in just a second. We'll point out why. So now in this passage in Mark, we see the determination of Judas to betray Jesus. We see the extravagant acts of love that will always stand in stark contrast to those of betrayal. As we think about the, the contrast in the context of Mary to Judas... If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. It's not on the screen, but I think it's at a very important point. Some people find Jesus useful because of what they think they can get from him. Some people find Jesus useful because of what they think they can get from him. Others find Jesus beautiful because they get him. Jesus is useful versus beautiful. I get Jesus. He is the, the gift to me versus what can Jesus gift me, right? I want to look at a, 
few other passages that will inform us a little bit more about what's going on with Judas. Uh, This passage, John chapter 12, verse 4, is right in the middle of that sandwich that we see in in Mark. There's the the John parallel passage of what's going on in this act of worship. In John 12, 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. But check this out, verse 6. Here is what Scripture reveals about the motives, the intentions of his heart. Not that he cared for the poor. He was what? A thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Now, what this tells me today is that Judas was, if he was a football fan today, he would cheer for the Steelers. <laughs> dun, dun. Figured I'd throw in the uh, football dad joke right in the middle today. <clears throat> it was the only day appropriate in the whole year to be able to do that. But what does Scripture reveal about his heart? It reveals that he's, he's a thief. You see, Mary was inviting Jesus into her life was receiving all that, that he was and the beauty of who he was. And, for, and, and it's producing this picture of beautiful worship where, where Judas is like, it's all about what I can get right now. Where he is choosing to reject what Jesus is talking about, future riches in eternity with him. He's like, no, I reject that. I want my riches now. Look at what Matthew 26, 14 says. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, many uh, in commentaries and theologians Um, Not everybody agrees, and there's not enough scripture to really be very dogmatic about this, but many would believe that that moment, that that time frame happened after that dinner in Bethany, most likely after that dinner on Saturday night. So that he goes out after getting scolded by Jesus for scolding Mary, and, and he's told, stop it, leave her alone, and he loses out on the opportunity for, again, like, I've invested three and a half years of my life with you, Jesus, and now you are, are, are set on heading toward the cross, not a kingdom, and that's not what I signed up for. And so he is now going out and seeking like a thief would. What's my next gig? What's my next deal? Like I've got to like, this is running out. This bag's getting light and pretty soon it's going to be over. So he's got to uh, essentially kind of go secure the bag in another, another location. And so he goes out and has a conversation with the chief priests and the leaders and specifically says in this passage, kind of adds to the, the parallel passage, each kind of add a little bit more to the story of what happens and what happened that night. It's specifically 30 pieces of silver. That's important. A very specific detail. And I'll remind us of the prophecies in a few minutes referring to 30 pieces of silver. Now, if this happens Saturday night, that means that all week long, triumphal entry, Monday, Tuesday, I think this is, I think now in the Mark passage, we're right before the Last Supper. We're in the Wednesday time frame. All week long, he's got in his heart 
He knows that this plan like, is in motion to betray Jesus. The details are established. This thief who often steals, Scripture says. So that means this man has walked with God for three and a half years and is choosing. Okay, Because I've heard people talk about um, and struggle with the fact that Judas chooses to do this versus he was made to do this by Satan. This is a man who has chosen for three and a half years in his walk with God to reject him. He is an unregenerate thief. It's, it's got to be like there is no hierarchy of sin. But as we in our human mind kind of grab, you know, and try to wrestle with some of these truths in Scripture, when you think about Adam walked with God and betrays God, rejects God, doubts God. And sin enters the world, it says, because of Adam's decision to betray God. Judas is here. He walked with God for three and a half years and chose to reject eternal riches for temporal riches. It was that, this is his heart of his life, the struggle, the selfish intention of his life. Look at this next passage that sheds a little more light on what's going on with Judas at this moment. Luke 22, starting in verse 1. These are familiar verses at the beginning, and, and they are just describing what we've already seen in Mark and in Matthew. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Note that. We talked about it last week. They don't want a crowd. They don't want a riot. They're afraid of the people. Then in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went to the leading priests and captain of the temple guard, to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted. Now they've got an inside man, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when? When the crowds weren't around. So Judas's plan, the leader's plan was when the crowds are not around is when we should be looking to seize and arrest Jesus. Now, here's, here's the question, and we're going to kind of unpack a few of these pieces today, because we're really kind of talking a little bit about game plan today. Man's game plan, Satan's game plan versus God's game plan, and how it gets executed. So, what are the plans of man and Satan at this time? Like, what is going on, and who is in control of it? You see, man is trying to control. Satan is trying to gain control. The leadership at the time are super happy with their inside man. Like, we just fell into, like, the perfect scenario. Somebody on the coaching staff wants to betray the team. Awesome. And yet, at the very same time, it reveals that they're still they're afraid of the people's response, the people's reaction. No crowds. Judas, also, absence of crowds. No crowds. We don't want the crowds. We don't want the people to know what betrayal is happening of Jesus. Now, this passage specifically says that Satan enters him. Satan comes in. Now, in other passages, we know that Scripture says, don't give Satan a foothold in your life. It describes like laying out the welcome mat. But he doesn't just lay out the welcome mat. He's like, doors open, like, hey, like open for business. He's looking for opportunity that might come his way in order to fill his pockets, to to satisfy the selfishness that's in his life. Now, I've always 
like kind of contemplated and thought like, okay, this guy is so greedy. Why is it that he settles for 30 pieces of silver on what's probably the greatest betrayal ever in history outside of maybe Adam? He's betraying Jesus. He's the inside guy. Why is it that he, the greediest guy we see in scripture, why does he settle for 30 pieces of silver? Why wouldn't he hold out for more? Why wouldn't he have had a plan? Well, it's interesting that this is set when Satan is in control, when Satan has entered him, that he's possessed by Satan in this time, Scripture says. <clears throat> and it's set that 30 pieces of silver is the amount that is settled on. When prophetically, Exodus 21, 32 says that's a price of a slave and that 30 pieces of silver is, is said prophetically in Zechariah chapter 11, Psalm 41, and Jeremiah 19. Jesus, two specific times in the Gospels, refers to those prophecies about himself, 30 pieces of silver betrayed by a friend. And yet, Judas was really being puppet mastered by Satan at the time that he accepts a slave's price to betray Jesus. So now, what's Satan up to? at this time. Because for many years, I've heard people talk about, and I thought, like, it wouldn't, it, it doesn't it just kind of logically make sense that Satan's trying to kill Jesus? Like, get rid of Jesus, off Jesus. Like, that's the plan, right? <clears throat> now, I don't know exactly what Satan's thinking, because Scripture doesn't tell us what he's thinking, but we can see by his actions what the strategy is. And I think the strategy becomes clear. Based on what we know about Scripture, Satan's game plan, in line with the man's game plan, but kind of his own, because he sees and knows even a little bit more. I mean, he knows scripture and he knows the words of Jesus. So did he know that Jesus was going to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Yes. Did he understand the Old Testament prophecies? I think perfectly well. Did he understand the Levitical sacrifices pointing to the death of one sacrifice, the Son of God? Does he know that he came to save his people from their sins? Does he know that Jesus has been living his life in the shadow of the cross, bent and, and laser-focused on moving toward the cross in his life? Yes, of course. That Jesus is the satisfying atonement that God planned, God's plan? And would Satan know that if Jesus died on the cross, that Satan's kingdom, his dominion, would be forever destroyed? That all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis when it says that he would bruise the heel of the one who would come, Jesus, that Satan would bruise the heel, but that Jesus would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. It would forever end Satan. In fact, as we think about, like, what is Satan's game plan and strategy here? It might be important for you to think about a few a few details that happen, like in the temptation of Christ, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus begins his ministry. He's starting his ministry. He's on his way to the cross. But Satan tries to turn him off of a path of suffering and sacrifice. Okay, it's important. He's trying to change the game plan to his game plan, moving Jesus from suffering and sacrifice to serve yourself. In the wilderness, he tempts him, Matthew 4. All of the, the points of temptation 
are don't walk the path of suffering and sacrifice to death. Why don't you use your power to escape suffering? And if you're the son of God, show your right to reign, and I can help you do it. Whatever you do, don't go to the cross. In fact, in Matthew 16, Peter, when Jesus declares he's going to go die, he says, I'll never let you be killed by that, like that. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to die. If you're trying to stop me from dying, you're like Satan. So wait, what is he trying to do then through Judas? I believe, some believe that, that he's using Judas just to make it more bitter. The betrayal would be awful. It's just a harder uh, experience, like almost as if like he's given up that, that Jesus is going to end up at the cross, so I'm going to make it as awful and horrendous as possible for Jesus. I believe that what he's trying to do is I look through the, the plans of man versus God's plan is that in this moment, if he can, if he can use Judas to change and speed up the timeline. If man's plan is, don't have this happen with the crowds. Satan now is trying to escalate. If he can cause this to happen, where in the middle of this, this eight-day festival, Jesus can be arrested, and all of a sudden, the riot can happen, maybe man can keep Jesus from being crucified. And I believe Satan, in his twisted way, is trying to manipulate Again, Jesus from not dying, from not going to the cross. Let's cause a riot. If a riot happens, it's what the, the leaders didn't want to happen. They specifically say it. Rome will come in and take our positions, our power, and our property. And if we can have a riot, Satan's thinking now the people will rise up and the whole thing will be turned upside down. But everyone in this except God himself grossly miscalculates the heart of man. The fickle heart of man. Who would have ever thought, even uh, the Roman leadership, as we see over these next couple weeks as we get into these, they're confused by the people. What, Barabbas? Like, this is the king. You're, you're, you're saying that, like, you, what happened in the heart of man? But see, over all of time, this is not man's plan or Satan's plan. This is God's game plan. Prophetically, the scriptures prophesied that evil men will reject Jesus when he comes, that Jesus must be hated, that disciples would abandon Jesus, that Jesus would be pierced, but none of his bones would be broken, that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus himself prophesied down to the very details how he would be killed. It's God's plan. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, his way versus God's way. The Lord had to lay on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sins of all of us. And verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Why would it be God's game plan to crush Jesus in this way? To save us. Why? Because he loves us. Even the entrance of Jesus for his birth. God loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus. And if anybody believes in him, they will not perish, but they will have eternal life through Jesus. Think about 
all that has happened in order to derail the plans, this game plan of God. We mentioned a little bit about it last week. You see, God, the head coach, has drawn up a perfect plan, but at the same time, all the wicked and evil spiritual uh, uh, power and darkness is against him from the beginning until now. The details of his birth are perfect execution. The details of him escaping to Egypt, perfect execution. His life is perfect execution. The plan is, is being executed perfectly. While all the time, man and Satan are trying to change and manipulate to get what they desire. And now, even in the middle of his team, his coaching staff, there's a betrayer. Not somebody who's stealing signs from the other team, but given the whole plan and plays and deceptively betraying. Today, church... And those that might be here just passing through today, the truth is that just like Judas, you're the quarterback of your own life. You and I get to choose. What do we do with this head coach who has a game plan? What are you going to do about the truths that you know from God's word revealed about his plan and that in this plan, it took perfect execution, but it's leading to a perfect execution. It's kind of morbid to say it that way out loud, but it's exactly what God's plan was. It's what Isaiah 53 says. It was perfect execution that led to the perfect execution. It's the only sacrifice. Hebrews says they've sacrificed for all these years. The lambs that were slain, the blood was accepted one time a year on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the nation. But no more do you have to continue to, to sacrifice the lambs. Only one Passover lamb was slain for all of eternity future. So one and done, it was Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John chapter 1. Perfect execution leading to perfect execution. God's goal was that Jesus would die as a sacrificial lamb on Friday around 3 o'clock, the very same time that the Passover lambs would be being slain on Friday at 3 o'clock. Just the details alone that this would all have to come together for that timing to take place is a God supernatural miracle. He becomes the true Passover lamb. I asked this question last week, and I ask it in closing today. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust his timing? Do you trust his plan and his path to provision? Do you trust him? It's a huge question. If you were a quarterback and you had a wide receiver who ran perfect routes and caught every ball, would you trust him? If you had an offensive coordinator who drew up the absolute perfect plays all the time, it seemed like no matter what the defense was running, we score a touchdown every time. Would you trust that? You have a head coach who protects you and loves you and cares for you and meets your needs. And as we sang earlier, he won't, he won't, he won't fail. Perfect execution of the game plan. The game plan was Jesus being executed, all because he loved you and he loves me and he wants to spend eternity with us. 
He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus goes on the cross and it says that all of our sins were nailed to him while he was there. And there's this great exchange of his righteousness for our sinfulness. It's a miracle. It's a perfect execution. All of the details that had to happen with all of the darkness and the wickedness and the evil against him, and it's a perfect execution. Another example of the perfect faithfulness of a loving, sovereign God. Do you trust him? His plan, his path, and his provision today. I hope today, church, as we look at just some of the simple details, even of Judas, the betrayer, that we'd stop and think, okay, this guy who had access to Jesus 24-7 for three and a half years, he made a decision. He was the quarterback of his life, and he made a decision, I reject you, Jesus. We have the same decision today. Every day, this world, every person in it who Jesus has died for has the opportunity to accept or reject, and today is no different for us in here. You can choose to accept receive the beautiful gift, and then in response to what he is and what he's given you in his life, give a beautiful act of worship response like Mary does. Last week we saw she did what she could do. Today, what can you do with the knowledge and the understanding of what Christ has done for you? You can choose to accept it or you can reject it. And I pray today that you would accept it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, it's by grace that you've been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. He gave you a free gift of Jesus. And it's not by works, lest any person tell you otherwise. You see, Jesus doesn't need our works. If, if we could work our way, then why did he have to die? Well, that's not part of God's game plan. Jesus paid it all. He paid the price so that we not only didn't have to, we can't. We can't. Church, I hope today that um, as we're faced with the gravity of the rejection of Judas, that as believers, we'd respond to that and we'd say, okay, that man was a sellout. He, he sold his whole life out. He was a rejecter. But we have the choice even on the other side of acceptance, relationship. Sometimes we choose to sell out too, don't we, for day by day things that are fleeting and don't matter. Don't be the, the sellout. Don't be the traitor, the betrayer of the one who has given you his everything. So today, my challenge is if we trust him, if we believe in him, if we received him, we're walking with him, give him everything. All that I am, I'm giving to you because of all that you've given me. Beautiful exchange. Beautiful relationship with a beautiful God. Father, I, I ask that you would just permeate this place with your presence even as we close and we sing. Lord, that those who may be contemplating where they're at in their relationship of you, that, Lord, if they're a believer of you, that, Lord, we would think about the areas maybe today that we um, temporarily sell out when we shouldn't. That, Lord, we would be worshipers like Mary who worship without preservation or reservation. We don't hold anything we back. We give it all to you. Lord, for those who may be here who are still struggling with whether to accept you or reject you, then God, I pray that somehow today that they would just supernaturally understand how much you love them. That in the same passage in Ephesians, it says that you love them so much that you created them as a masterpiece, that they are a beautiful creation in the image of you. 
and that there is no accidents. It is by design that they are exactly who they are. You have a perfect, beautiful plan for their life. But it starts with them starting a relationship with you by accepting you, putting their faith and their trust in who you are. That there's not another way to spend eternity with God. You say that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through you. So God, today, I, I pray that we trust you in that truth. That it's only through you, Jesus, that we come to be in the presence of the Father. Lord, I pray that our hearts are soft, but also um, just excited to worship you now as we close. Thank you for, uh, Lord, the opportunity to be together today. Um, There's a lot of fun and excitement, but Lord, I pray that as we look into the word of God every week, that we don't walk away and forget what we've seen, but that we change because of what we've seen. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.